So my husband, Eric, is a very good Christmas gift giver. I don't know if you know that about him, but around this time of year, he's listening to all of our conversations at home. And, I mean, I don't mean to say that's the first time he was listening to our conversations. <laughs> hmm, no. But he's listening extra intently for all those things we might say, some things that might come up where he could just tuck that away like, hmm, maybe that's a good Christmas gift. And so that's what he did last Christmas when I just innocently said, I would love some time to learn how to play chess. And so on Christmas morning, I received this chess set. And um, not only is it a chess set, but it's also a game that teaches you how to play chess because I have no clue. And so um, it's called No Stress Chess. And I will have to tell you that the manufacturers have lied about that title. <laughs> but what I have learned about chess is that there are approximately, I don't know, 50 billion moves that you can make and that you can learn all kinds of different strategies. Who are the chess players in the room? So you guys know this already, uh, but I am still learning, even though that was last Christmas. So I also learned very quickly that you can go down quite a rabbit hole of learning about chess online, like down to the extreme dress codes for the tournaments and um, all the different clubs and strategic groups you can join to learn all the different moves, moves for the beginning of the game, the middle of the game, the end of the game. So what piece, just shout it out if you know, what piece is the most powerful in chess? Queen. Ding! And while the queen, however, is the most powerful, the king is said to be the most important in the game. Because, of course, you know this, you're trying to uh, just capture your opponent's king. And once you do, you're the winner in no-stress chess. So we could come up with quite a few metaphors comparing chess to life, or comparing chess to political systems. But I've been thinking about it in relation to our current sermon series of kings and kingdoms. Last week, Eric reminded us of the scripture in Judges that said this, in those days Israel had no king, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. I mean, man, I remember being 12 and having that same attitude, like, whatever is right. And so, through the prophet Samuel, God gave him a king, even though that was not the plan at all. And so this era of kings and kingdoms began, and began with King Saul. And throughout the history of this era, it went as well as we would surmise, based on the history of the Israelites so far, and let's face it, based on the history of humanity. Sometimes things went well, and other times things when kings tried to rule and reign with their own chess strategies, it was tragic, horrific. Sometimes kings were sincere and intent upon being faithful to God, and other times not at all. Sometimes the people were sincere and intent on being faithful to God, and other times not at all. And like in chess, each king that ruled and reigned had their own sense of strategy, their own sense of how to rule and reign and the moves to make within this political arena that they found themselves in ruling over. 
And sometimes they were wonderful. And sometimes there were great failures in the eyes of the Lord. And so finally, in 1 Samuel 15, 35, the Lord tells us that he was sorry that he ever made Saul king over Israel to begin with. And so he sent the prophet Samuel to a little town we know called Bethlehem. He sent the prophet Samuel to Bethlehem to the house of Jesse, where he said he would find a new king there to rule. And so Samuel travels to Bethlehem, to this house of Jesse. The people see the prophet Samuel, and they are terrified. If prophets are going to your town, it's either good news or bad news. And so they see Samuel coming, and they're terrified, and they're asking him, are you here in peace? And so we pick up here uh, in chapter 16, verse 5, when he's saying, yes, peaceably, I am here. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Sanctify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he sanctified Jesse and his sons, and he invited them to the sacrifice. When they came down, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is now before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord does not see as mortals see. They look on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen any of these. Samuel said, are all of your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and bring him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy, had beautiful eyes, and was handsome. The Lord said, Rise and anoint him, for this is the one. And then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David. Upon David from that day forward, Samuel then set out and went to Ramah. And now Israel has a new king, King David. Perhaps the most well-known of all the Old Testament kings. David is beloved. A man said to be after God's own heart and seemingly begins well at the start of his reign. After the Lord chooses him to be king, Saul is still alive. David goes to Saul in his torment as he's dying and sings and plays his harp to him to soothe him. Soon Saul kills Goliath, the Philistine, on behalf of the Israelites. David marries a woman, Michael, has a beloved friendship with Jonathan, friendship and ministry with Jonathan, marries a woman named Abigail, and then is then officially appointed and consecrated as king of Israel. David executes battle with strategy. Strategy for the sake of this kingdom including the capture of Jerusalem, where he would then parade 
joined in with the Ark of the Covenant for it to rest there. All is going well. But then, things change. As they did then and as they do now, when we take our eyes off of God, things turn to just themselves. David noticed a young woman bathing on the top of her roof. Her name was Bathsheba. And his desire to have her wins over his desire to be faithful to God, to be faithful to his family. And he sends for her. He has his way with her, against her will. And he takes her as if she were his very own wife in a moment of tragic, horrific consequence. But it doesn't end there. It only gets worse. She tells David later that she is pregnant. And so David arranges for Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, a soldier in David's army, to be killed while in battle. But not just to be killed. But listen to this in 2 Samuel 11. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab, sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him so that he may be struck down and die. Such chess moves, right? Such strategic moves to cover up sin. Thomas Merton, you may have know, or know of him or have read him before. He's a Trappist monk who lived uh, a good while at the Abbey of Gethsemane in Kentucky. He died in 1968, prolific writer. He said this, When one is firmly convinced of his own righteous rightness and goodness, he can without qualm perpetuate Oh my gosh, say that word for me. Perpetuate the most appalling evil. He can without qualm perpetuate the most appalling evil. It's funny to me what a little elevation does to our own psyches. Whether it's being elevated by prestige or title or wealth or the family we were born in, the country we were born in, even being physically elevated above our typical usual vantage points of our lives can do something in our minds. Even that can shift, shift our understanding or our own sense of the power that we hold. We may feel like this. Remember Jack Dawson in the movie Titanic? When he stands at the, at the edge of the ship, I'm the king of the world. I wonder if David ever felt like that. Maybe standing on that rooftop. It can also create in us a sense of authority and power 
and can cause us to be like Saul or David or any of the human kings of this world. And though we may never be, we probably won't ever be, a king or queen of any nation, we do all have authority over something. We all have power in certain circumstances, even if it is just the power and authority over our own will, over ourselves, over our own choices. And it seems sometimes in certain areas of our lives where we may feel powerless, that over here in this little bit of place where we have power, we wrangle that because this doesn't feel good over here. If we were to make a chart of all the kings so far, if we were to look at their rise and fall, they would just be these arcs, fall, arise, a good start, and then, ugh, David, arise, a good start, and then falling. David's son Solomon, arise, a good start, and even under Solomon's rule, the whole kingdom splits in two. The Ark of the Kings. But I believe that if we each charted our own Ark, that it would look similar if we're honest with ourselves. Because in truth, our lives can be just as messy as David. Our lives can be just sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes a complete and utter mess. We may feel as if we are a mess, the biggest mess in the world, which is why we have a Messiah. a Messiah for our mess, and a Messiah for all the messes we make when we take our eyes off of God, off of being faithful to God. When we take our eyes off of God and we start to play chess with our lives, moving the pieces of ourselves and others for our own benefit as kings to our own kingdom. a Messiah for our mess when we see people as just pieces on the board to be moved. The good news, the good news of our Messiah, the person of Jesus Christ, is that there is always, always, always redemption, always forgiveness, always things being brought back to order and brought back to peace always, always within this Messiah's offering of grace to us, always a chance for the newness of life, the newness of creation, new mercy every morning, new mercy for every do-over that we will ever need. After that moment with David and Bathsheba, Nathan, or God sent the prophet Nathan to David, to try to help him see what he had done, how far off course he had become, how way out of bounds and the harm that he had caused. But David was blind to it. 
couldn't see it. Not at all. It was adamantly opposed to that from Nathan. Until he did see it. Until the Lord helped him to see it. And then he was grieved. And in his grief, he wrote Psalm 51. I'm going to read it for us. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you alone, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified in your sentence and blameless when you pass judgment. Indeed, I was born guilty, a sinner, when my mother conceived me. You desire truth in the inward being. Therefore, teach me wisdom in my secret heart. Friends, we all have a secret heart. That place that only we know about. That place where sin can bubble up in our spirit, in our minds. Teach me wisdom, he said, in my secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and put a new and right spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain in me a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from bloodshed, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your deliverance. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you have no delight in sacrifice. If I were to give a burnt offering, you would not be pleased. The sacrifice acceptable to God is a broken spirit. And a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Be good to Zion and your good pleasure. Rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. David came to that understanding of his own sin in his own secret heart. With Christ, our Messiah, there is always forgiveness for whatever is in our secret heart. No matter the mess. No mess too big or barbaric or horrific for Jesus. No mess that was too long ago or an hour ago. No mess too small or insignificant or unsightly or hard to even think of that Jesus cannot offer the grace of forgiveness. I have heard it said that Jesus came to turn the world upside down. 
that I just lovingly disagree with that because I think that's backwards. I think that Jesus came to turn the world right side up. The way it was intended to be, the way that we were intended to live, the way that we are intended to live with one another. And so each time that we go to the Lord for forgiveness, when we ask the Messiah to help us with our mess, he will turn that right side up. And he will turn whatever that mess is into a message. Into a message for a new way forward. A new purpose. Turning our mess into a message for hope for the world. Right side up for his kingdom. Rather than trying to wrangle ours to the tippy top of the heap. This is what he did for David. David said in his psalm, Then I will teach transgressors your ways. God gave David a message from his mess. When we experience this radical, generous grace called forgiveness, when our mess is transformed, our lives just look different. And y'all, I want to be straight to the point on this. This all has to mean something. The gospel message that we know of, that we read about, that we center the life of the church around, it must make a difference, an actual difference in our lives. It must change our lives, the way we think the way we spend, the way we speak, the way we move our figurative chess pieces around the board of our lives, it must make a notable and marked difference in our lives. Because if it is not, we are not allowing the Messiah to transform our mess. Not allowing God to do what God does best, creating something new. And here's how I know this in my own life. When I ask for forgiveness, but then do not allow God to change my own heart, my secret heart, or my speech, or my thoughts about someone who has hurt or harmed me, when I roll my eyes about that one person who I know is going to be sitting at my Thanksgiving Day table, when I keep on getting angry over the same things on social media, my spending habits reflecting my own chessboard, rather than how God is directing me, or when I take time off of my spiritual discipline so that I can have just a little bit more sleep or a little bit more social media time, that's how it begins in me. I don't know how it begins in you. Last week, Eric Ashley sang for us. I love it when you do that. He sang from the praise chorus, Kings and kingdoms will all pass away, but there's something about that name. All the kingdoms 
fight for the kingdom of God will pass away. And so Christ gives us a new message for our mess to bring about his kingdom here on earth. Are we being transformed by it? Are we then transforming the world by this new message in our mouths, this new message of hope and forgiveness in Christ Jesus? So I have a different place for us for us to sing. Who knows, Charlie? Oh, battle. Yes, no. <laughs> Who remembers this? If you do, will you sing it? Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. When we are so focused on Christ, the other things of this world just will fade away in importance to us as things to wrangle and manipulate. What is turning dim for you in the kingdoms of this world that we live in? Where is Jesus wanting to dim the light in the earthly kingdoms for you so that you can see his all the brighter? David said to God, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Are we willing to be like David and to offer our hearts to Christ to create something new? To say, Here's my heart, Lord. Here is my secret heart. Speak truth. Speak life. Do with it as you will for your purpose, for your glory, for your kingdom. Amen. As the band comes forward, I want to remind you that the altar is open. It's a time that you can spend either in your seats, but of course here at the Nailers, time saying to the Lord, here's my heart, Lord. Will you stand as we sing?
so now that we've offered our hearts to the Lord, may we do so as we join hand in hand and heart to heart with one another, that we go forward in faith together as a church family, as a faith family, where we can come to one another in love and tenderness and compassion and forgiveness. May we go forward out after worshiping today with a message in our mouths that God is the Messiah of all, forgiveness, grace, mercy, hope, and love. In the name of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, forever and ever. Amen.